Welcome to the Accessible Altar, a podcast at the intersection of faith and disability. I'm Stephanie Shockley. And I'm Robin King. And we are your hosts. Today, you're going to hear just us because we are going to do an episode we've wanted to do for quite a while, which is basically a question and answer episode. Um, People have been asking us questions and we want to try to offer some answers, maybe not definitive answers, maybe not the answer for all time for all these questions, but some things to think about. Um, And we've selected a handful of questions that we have been asked. So Stephanie, when we got this question, I both thought, oh, of course we should say something about that. And I also thought like, I completely see why we didn't say anything about that. Uh, The question is, who is disabled and how does chronic illness fit into that? Right. So it might seem like it's a straightforward question. Like there is one answer to who is disabled. Um, There is not a straightforward answer to who is disabled. In the United States, we have uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act, which does provide some pretty clear answers as far as who is disabled according to the law. Um, But disability and disability identity is a lot more complicated than that. Um, The ADA says that you're disabled if uh, you have a situation, some kind of um, condition or a situation that is impairing your ability to perform one or more major life tasks, I think. I may be getting the verbiage a little bit wrong. We'll link to some information that's correct. but that is one way to define it, um, but it's a little more complicated. So similar in Canada, we have the uh, Accessible Canada Act, which is pretty new, and their definition is similar. And they say disability means any impairment, and then they specify some of those, or functional limitation, whether permanent, temporary, or episodic. I do have the text in front of me here that in interaction with a barrier, and they have some language around what that is, hinders a person's full and equal participation in society. So similar, but a little different flair on the, the language of it. Right. And we will link um, to both of those in our show notes so that you can look at those uh, yourself. Um, there are also questions, uh, there are a lot of questions around disability identity and um, there are people who identify as disabled. There are people who might have the same condition as someone who identifies as disabled who do not identify as disabled. Um, So it can be a little bit complicated. Estimates are that possibly, what is it, one in five people in North America has some kind of disability. Yeah, somewhere between one in five and one in four, depending on which set of statistics you look at. Those are linked on our website. Um, And I have a whole thing we won't do today about why I think those are all uh, soft numbers and the numbers even pre effects of the pandemic were probably higher than that. And then the pandemic has, it's probably going to raise those because of lung COVID and other things that arose over the last couple of years. But the point when we list that statistic, even though it's not a hard and fast number, um, The point is that it is quite a large percentage of the population. It is not an unusual situation um, Mm -hmm. or it's not novel in any way. So the related question there is where does chronic illness fit? That's a good question. 
So I have a couple responses to that one. And people may not like all of these. So I think there are some conditions that are chronic health things that don't impact your life. And chronic illness is a great term for that because it might mean you have an extra doctor to go see every year. You take a daily medication, but it, it doesn't have, you know, that sort of limitation on major life activities that the sort of technical disability definition. But I also think there are points where we talk about chronic illness because we think disability looks ways. It looks like someone in a wheelchair. It looks like someone with a cane. It, it, it has this obvious thing and everyone else were just like, oh, it's just a chronic illness, which is not helpful. I think disability is actually much bigger and overlaps with that chronic illness. I think most people think of as chronic illness much more significantly. I do think it kind of leads us back to the fact that it is complicated, is not easy to put very hard and fast boundaries around any of this. It is a little bit complicated and sometimes, yeah, it can be hard to understand how it all fits together. And and it's just, there's such a wide variety of situations and, and uh, conditions that it can be hard to understand. And again, a lot of people don't really even realize that they might fit in e either one or both of these categories because of, I think, a lot of issues in our society with, with either having a chronic illness or with calling yourself disabled. Yeah, there's that sort of social psychological stigma that gets attached to that. Yeah, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> right. And it can be frustrating for those who consider themselves fully within the disability community or chronic illness community because, um, and I think we've alluded to this or talked about this in other episodes, because we're kind of like, hey, <laughs> come on over and join us. I think I think, Robin, I think you've said before, the come on in, the water's fine. But there's a little bit of this feeling of there is some strength in numbers. And if you could join our numbers, that might help us out a little bit, <laughs> you know. Um, also, I mean, some of it is that for me. Some of it is also like once I had worked through like enough of my own internalized ableism that I could be like, yeah, I'm disabled. And that's something that's just true and can be awesome about me. I was like oh, this really fixes some, I could have avoided some of the therapy I'm still paying for. <laughs> right. Because if, I, if that had not been so stigmatized, I would have felt so much freer and so much better capable and able and part of society for years that I just, I struggled. Yeah, because then you can get on with life, right? Yeah. You can figure out what works, you can figure out what doesn't work. You can get on with life. Maybe find some of your people, which is cool. And a lot of things make sense that always just seem like, is this a me problem? And it turns out, no, it's not. It's an ableism problem. This actually leads quite well into the other question we got, which is if we could spend a little time talking about disability models, which we are only going to spend a little time about, we could spend hours on like i i suspect if someone wanted to do a podcast just on like different models of disability that would be a nice year or two <laughs> run we're gonna link you to several different resources that talk about these both in sort of like a basic and then like all the options and some other things um stephanie do you have a favorite disability model you wanted to 
Oh, a favorite. The first thing I wanted to say about disability models, um, and one of the things we're going to link to is an article about disability models from the, what is this? The Journal of Philosophy of Disability. And um, Robin ran across this in our research for this particular episode and sent it to me. And it is not a light read. Um, It is a long article, a very academic article, but it was, and it covers six different disability models. Um, And uh, one of the things I really like about talking about disability models is that it gives you language for phenomena that you observe that you don't have a language for. Let me use I sentences or I phrases. I didn't necessarily have a language for all of this. Um, I don't have a degree in disability studies. And so I'm learning a lot about how there are frameworks and there are theories and there is language to explain some of the things that we experience in real life. So this article um, about these six, they chose six of the models was really helpful. So I don't know if I have a favorite model. One of the things I like about this article is it says the models can exist in clusters. So you can find that there are aspects of different models that you find to be helpful or true. I will say that one model that I do like a lot is the social model. Um, it is not, none of these models is, none of them are perfect. There's a reason there are so many of them. Right. That none of them fully describes the experience of disability. And some of them describe it in a way that's a little disturbing and describes things that you might not believe in, but that you see in the world and like, oh, well, I'm glad there's a name for that thing. That's not okay. Um, such as the tragedy model, right? I don't like the tragedy model, but it explains a lot of the ways in which the world deals with disability. Um, so it's helpful to know that it exists, even if I find a lot of thing, aspects of it offensive. Um, but anyway, I do like the social model because it gives a word to describe um, the fact that the environment can feel disabling. So disability often is treated as an individual situation or individualistic problem. Um, And some of these models of disability speak to that. The medical model, for example, the tragedy model. Um, They speak to this idea of it like being it's your own individual thing. Sorry that happened to you. We'll try to fix it, but good luck. You know, kind of I'm being flip, but, but it is a little bit, it can be a little bit like that. It's very individual. The social model says um, that it's more about the way that society handles disability, the way the environment is constructed, the way uh, both the physical environment, but also um, the environment in which you find yourself as far as socially, um, the way you're treated, the work environment, uh, you know, whatever. So it helps explain, for example, the fact that I feel more disabled in some settings than in others which was really confusing to me before I understood that that's not weird, that that's a thing that really happens. It's not that you change between those. It's that the environment enables you differently. So for example, um, one of the things that's that I find particularly irritating about my particular disability is my inability to drive. I live in the United States. We're obsessed with our cars. We don't really care very much about having good public transit, except for in very specific places. Not being able to drive is very limiting and it can also be kind of infantilizing. And I've always found it very frustrating. Um, When I lived in Manhattan, 
I never felt as disabled as I do living in the suburbs because that component of disability that is my, um, you know, my subjective experience of my disability when I feel more disabled in a car in a car dependent environment that was taken away. I could do anything I wanted. Any subway runs 24 hours a day. I could do anything I wanted any time of the day or night. And if the subway wasn't a good option, there was always a cab to hail, Um, which was quite a wonderful experience and also quite a privilege. I understand not everybody has access to that kind of thing. But for me, that changed my relationship to my disability. Um, And then there are other environments that where I feel just, extremely disabled because I don't handle bright light really well. There are places like very brightly lit, um, like very, very sunny places or sunny and snowy places or things like that can feel very um, overwhelming. And I can feel like I can't even move. Um, I'm thinking of, for example, I'm thinking of a, I was standing uh, in the ruins of a church of a Byzantine church one time. And I literally, (laughs) My husband was with me and like we were with a tour group and I couldn't move because it was so bright and there was just bright white stones everywhere and I couldn't do anything because I couldn't tell if I was just going to move one foot to the left or left or fall off a cliff if I stepped anywhere because I couldn't figure out where my footing was and I'm literally just like standing there in this Byzantine, the ruins of a Byzantine church and I'm just like to my husband, like, just, 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 I'm going to hold on to you. And you're just going to tell me where to put my feet. I don't know what's happening right now. Like, and I don't want to, and I don't want to, you know, like destroy an ankle out here in this situation. Like, so things like that, that I would feel extremely disabled in that environment. And then um, if I, you know, as hopefully some people listen to the uh, episode on service dogs or the episodes on service dogs, if not, you should go back and do that because they're lovely. Um, but the person we interviewed for that episode is a dear, dear friend of mine. When I go to a, like, so if I go to a party at his house and he has a, he and his wife have a lovely house and they have a beautiful, he's a, he's a gardener and she's just like a wonderful host. And they, their, their house is a great house to go to a party at. And if you go to a party at their house, there's a mix of sighted and not sighted or partially sighted people. And in that social environment, like totally comfortable. I'm comfortable in the physical environment because I know that I know that space really well. I've been there a number of times, but also everybody just kind of adapts to whatever the other person can or can't see or can and can't, can't do. And I don't feel, I feel like completely integrated into that environment. I feel like I, like I don't feel disabled in that environment at all because we all just kind of like make space for everybody. So I like the social model <laughs> for that reason, because it helps me understand the breadth of experience, but it doesn't like cover this, everything. Yeah. Yeah. The social model has flaws that we're probably not going to have time to get into. Nope. Cause I talked too long, but the, the other thing I like about it is I feel like it has given me ways to invite people into caring about this. Because when you can frame things as um, it's not that people can't do things, it's that the world is not set up to allow people to do things. Not always, like never always, sadly. But I, I feel like there are times when I can talk about that and people can sort of like catch that vision of a world where that doesn't happen and where that social model has been sort of 
just made into, you know, the world is now set up for everyone. And again, one of the things I love about this article is the idea that you can link multiple models together. And the article covers social, it covers models. It's um, The author says that these models can be linked in opposing pairs, social versus medical, tragedy versus affirmative, I'm sorry, and minority versus universal. But the author also says that any one of those things that are not part of a linked pair can be kind of clustered together. So you can look at what does the universal model have to say to the social model or what does the minority model have to say to the social model or you can put different pieces of it together. And that really helps because it explains, it explains a lot, explains, so explains a lot. I want to take just a minute. Uh, so I love the social model. The other model that once I heard about it explained a lot of the world to me is the economic model. Um, and this is, I don't like this model, but I want to just spend like a second on it because I think it does explain a lot of the world. The economic model of disability links productivity and the value of a person. AKA yet another reason why capitalism is a problem model. Also that, but it also, I think, begins to explain why so many disabled people are the language I often use for this is, you know, trapped below the poverty line because if they are not, and all of the air quotes, you know, economically productive members of society, why should we spend resources on them? Um, do not like it. Think it's really useful to understanding the world. <laughs> yeah. It, no, that was, exactly. It, similar to the tragedy model it is helpful for understanding the problem it doesn't mean you have to think it's a great idea or that it's yep. correct so in the united states right now there's a big push um in disability circles to get away from the um the injustice injustice caused by the economic model where people are um in situations where they're either a sheltered workshop situation or something similar to that jobs program or something where they are paid below um, what would be paid to anybody else doing, doing a day's work. Um, so there's a lot of pushback against that economic model or, or, or the problems of the economic model right now, where it's like, you know, people are literally putting in all this time and because they are disabled and they're, they're, they, someone has decided that they're not, quote, productive enough, they're not being paid minim even minimum wage, which is pretty pathetic considering how bad minimum wage is in the United States. Yep. So yeah, I just wanted to like mention that because we will link to a long list that has a solid basic definition of a lot of different models, but social model, we've talked a lot about the medical model in other episodes, economic model, and then we'll come back to some of the moral and other things I think that people will encounter a lot in other places. Yeah. And we've talked about the tragedy model without calling it such. When we talk about the, when I've, when I've talked about how the pandemic, um, the issues around what I called almost eugenicist language and the pandemic made me so angry that I decided to agree to do this. Um, I'm talking about the tragedy model. I'm talking about the idea of like disability as tragedy and it's so sad and we should do everything we can to get rid of all disability, which taken to its extreme winds up with uh, in a place where you don't value the lives of uh, sick or disabled people to the extent that you try to make them disappear in, in very, 
and it, it's a very dangerous very model and mindset um but it, it's it makes sense and it's helpful to have a name for it and if you think that sounds hyperbolic uh go google ugly laws where literally people with non-normative physical appearances weren't allowed to appear in public so yeah also if somebody wants to do a whole podcast <laughs> uh, like series of podcasts on the different models uh if you have a lot of free time you really could that'd be really interesting yeah i would listen so the next thing we wanted to talk about is why the question of why is disability left out of so many DEI, in other words, diversity, equity, and inclusion conversations. So, um, so diversity, equity, and inclusion conversations have become really important in recent years, and they're being had in all different kinds of institutions and organizations. So this is something you mentioned, like way before we were talking, even talking about the podcast. And I, I saw your comment, like, why is disability always in the and others or the et cetera? And now I notice it every time. <laughs> and it's very, very rare. It's not never, but it's very, very rare that it's not like sexism and racism and all the other th- isms. You'll see sometimes an exhaustive laundry list. Um, and this is important. And I'm glad people are recognizing all these different groups that are struggling, right? And for equity and for inclusion and for being heard. And that's awesome. And there are groups that are making the list now that never used to. And I'm so glad we're doing better, but we're still, and that's that's really important, but we're still leaving disability out. I was looking at a diocesan profile for a bishop search recently. I was going through it and I was looking at all the language about the different, different groups and how we are working hard in this diocese according to this profile to to understand how we have historically worked with these different groups and to do better and all these things the only reference i could find in the profile that maybe was about disability or maybe not i don't know was and others (laughs) so yeah and others i was like one quarter of the population others and others right um and it's not just the church. I don't want to throw the church under the bus. This is unfortunately one of those places where an issue in the church is also reflected in the larger society. So it is in nonprofits. It is in business. It is in activist circles that I have been in, been part of where people have looked at me as if I was making no sense when I said, well, what, what about disability? Um it is a, it, it is everywhere. I see it everywhere. I know of disabled people who have worked for organizations that supposedly provide services and support to people with disabilities who ask their HR department, how come disability is not mentioned in our DEI training? And they were actually reprimanded for it. Which I find both deeply frustrating and completely unsurprising. Totally predictable. Yes. Yes. It, it, it happens all the time. Um, I've been part of uh, training on, uh, on other issues where I raise disability as, as a, a concern that would be part of, you know, intersectional concerns. And I was told this, to- this was not an appropriate topic and I was to stop talking about it. Um, okay. So it is left out. 
and this might be the area where we have the least satisfying answer, even just for ourselves. Got a couple things we'll link where there are places that are talking about the fact that disability is often missing from these DEI areas. We're also going to link to a Twitter thread by a, a wonderful disability activist in based in Vancouver, uh, where she talks about why inclusion isn't enough, uh, which I think is related. That, you know, part of building a society that enables disabled people is then also looking at all of the ways society usually does not. Um, I have, this story did not happen to me, but it happened to a mentor of mine who was at a church and asked why they didn't have a ramp to get into the church. And the church said, well, we don't have anyone who needs it. Yes, that's unfortunately common. Sometimes you have to build the things so the people can come. Um, Like if we're going to, make disability something that is not limiting to people it requires asking a lot of questions we have society as a whole has been able to avoid asking yeah and so i don't know that we have like robin said i don't know that we have a good answer to this i think that people find disability complicated because it's very multifaceted and there's always more to learn and um we don't have a lot of experience maybe talking about it um or learning how to ask questions appropriately, or I, I think, I think there are a lot of disabilities that are not immediately obvious. Like Robin, um, you were mentioning this before we were on mic, and so people don't realize what their um, fellow parishioners or coworkers or neighbors or whoever might be struggling with. And then on the flip side of that, um, many of us have been taught that people with obvious disabilities um, aren't able to participate in all the facets of life that um, that we're used to have people participating in. So we, we think, well, they won't be at our job or they won't be at this or they won't be at that. So why should we worry about including them? And unfortunately, that's a self-fulfilling prophe- um, prophecy. So if we're not trying to include people, they're not going to be included. You know, if we're not trying to make something accessible, people won't be able to access it. I mean, it's sort of like a, it's a circular sort of thing. And the implicit message of not building things to include others is if you don't fit our assumptions of who you are, please just don't tell us. Yep. So there are a lot of people who don't tell people. So I think the biggest thing about bringing up the DEI question is um, this kind of has an action item, I guess, which is pay attention and be aware, see if disability is included, even in the language. And sometimes it's included in the language and then in reality, and it, it, it's not actually not so much there included, but, but the language is, a, is one of the starting places. So notice it and raise the question. And because church, we can do better. We can definitely do better on this. All right, Robin, you had, um, a lot of things you wanted to say about chronic illness and disability and the concept with creation being uh, of creation being good. And this question, how does that all fit together? So yeah, part of this is one of my sort of not jokes is you can fix a lot of theology issues by going back to Genesis 1, where God creates and it is good. But that's often not how we talk about disability. Uh, And some of that is, if you are remembering back to the episode we did 
on Nancy Eastland's The Disabled God, that conflation of sin with disability, um, but that is not true. However, that is what most of history has taught us at this point in time. So people look at disability, which can often include pain or suffering or struggle and say, well, it can't be good. So how, how do we put that all together? Um, some of this is rooted, I think, in that disability models and really asking questions about why disability and chronic illness often include pain and suffering and struggle. Some of that is bodies that are just like generating pain. Um, some of that is we exist in a society where it's hard to get adequate medical care. It's hard to go out and spend time with your friends. It's hard to go to work. A lot of people with chronic illness and disability have to spend a lot more time and energy on doing those things. And that often feels like struggle and suffering. Um, but that's not creation. That's humans, not not God. I think some of it is we don't read Genesis 1 well. Um, and this is going to get a little like Bible geekery. So there is a concept in Jewish poetry that's called merism, where instead of giving a long list, they'll give like two examples. So X or, you know, like actually the better example of like A and Z and the implicit piece that they're communicating in the context of Jewish poetry is everything from A to Z. So when God creates and we get these very specific categories, I think most non-Jewish Western minds don't hear that. And we get a little fixated on the exact list, which leads to some other problems. Um, and we miss that part of what Genesis 1 is telling us is God has created enormous diversity. From the stars to the seas to everything. Yeah, the commas or dashes or whatever are doing a lot more work. Yeah. Then I, I think we realize because we maybe read it a little too literally. Yes. The other thing I think we miss here is, uh, especially if you are, if you have been sort of removed from working close to the land and close to animals, is nature is not forgiving like i think we see this and we see like the beautiful pictures of creation i know that's usually how i hear it nature has a lot of diversity and all sorts of things happen in nature humans became like the most prevalent species except bugs because we worked together and we cooperated and the bible is the story of god's relationship with these people who build relationships and help each other we are going to link to a couple of things. Um, one is 2012 talk from the Summer Institute on Faith and Disability by a scholar whose hands reindeers, reindeers, I am undoubtedly butcher, butchering that and I'm sorry, but it's a 20 minute talk. We'll also link for people for whom that, that video is not accessible to some notes taken by someone who is at it that I, I found captured a lot of the highlights. He comes at it from an ecology perspective where there aren't good plants and bad plants is one of the examples. There's just plants in their proper ecosystem. And how do we build a world where the full diversity of humanity can be appreciated healthily in a good ecosystem? 
So I, I don't think there's a simple answer. I think there's an element of at some point in time, you have to make your choice. And my choice is people like me, disabled people, are part of the creation God calls good. And we should build a world around that concept, not in opposition to it. I think some of that is about um, thinking about those disability models, thinking about the universal model, um, which has some flaws to it. But one of the things it says is that disability is, you know, it's sort of the secular equivalent to what you're saying. Disability is part of the um, wide variety of ways of experiencing being a human being. And, you know, with some disability uh, justice folks, disability advocates talk about being temporarily abled, right? That if you live long enough, you will experience some kind of disability. Um, That's part of the universal model. And I think that that's, there's some of that here too, where creation is just, we are not immortal and it just is what it is. It is good, but it is varied and it is complicated. And we don't have an answer for all of the questions. And we're not, we're not perfect in that, not, and not that we're in, like, we're never going to be in stasis where nothing's <laughs> ever going to happen to us. Or we're, you know, we can't, you know, freeze at an exact moment in time and be like that forever. That's, that's not what it is to be a human being in a mortal body. So the other thing we're going to link to, and this is an episode that's going to have a lot of resources linked. They're all because we think they're good. Uh, but there's a an article or an essay written by a scholar uh, titled More Than Skin, Skin Deep, where she talks about the experience of her students' opinions about disability at the beginning of the semester and then at the end of the semester after they had had significant contact with disabled people. I have not seen that resource yet. That's very interesting. It's, I found it this morning and didn't tell you. <laughs> I just put it in the list. Um, I think part of this question is rooted in um, some of what we're talking about, the DEI stuff. Like we tend to assume disabled people are somewhere other people aren't. When you know the statistics, when you know disabled people, you see us everywhere because we're everywhere. And the question, I think how you respond to the questions like this changes a little bit from, oh, we should find an answer to that and solve the problem of disability to, oh, that's just part of creation. And God says creation is good. I know that you were very interested in saying some things about warrior language. And if you hold on for a minute, we're going to wait while Robin gets on her soapbox. Yeah, that sound you might hear (laughs) is just me like pulling it out. Climbing Um, up. (laughs) Climbing up. Warrior language is really common. It is so common. I had stopped hearing it in some of the pandemic conversations until I was pulling resources for this. It's everything from, you know, we're going to fight cancer to the people in the front lines of the pandemic, all of that. In the trenches, on the front lines, fighting, yes, the battle against whatever, kicking, kicking cancer's ass, like all of the, there's our martial arts thing, we can weave that in, like, yeah. Yeah, all of, so all of that is what we're talking about. And we're linking, again, some really good resources here. There are a couple different problems with this. As a metaphor, I don't think it's actually a helpful metaphor. And there's some good research that shows that some of that is linked 
that when it becomes, you know, we have to like defeat cancer, even if a patient achieves remission, cancer as a fact of the world is unlikely to go anywhere. So it sets up this like eternal struggle and ongoing defeat, which is, I think, obviously, and again, there's some research around this, not great for mental health, <laughs> either for patients or for doctors and medical peoples. It also creates, and there's some really interesting articles uh, talking about what this does to people who have lost a loved one to cancer. Did they not fight hard? Sometimes cancer kills people. It's not a war. It's it's sad. It's often tragic, but it's not, you should have done something else necessarily, or you didn't do enough. So that's one level of the problem here. This reminds me of all the language about praying and trying to get your miracle and everything and how it leaves people behind. And it also reminds me of some of the language, it seems connected to some of the language that's really damaging to the families and loved ones of people who have completed suicide. Yes. Where there's just all this stuff about if you just did this thing hard enough. Slay your demons. Right. The bad thing wouldn't have happened. And my gosh, the the people that you're hurting and isolating mm-hmm. is so many. It also, a lot of that ignores, and this is one of those things um, we've, we've talked about, like my mother died from cancer when I was fairly young. And when I first started doing parish ministry, I encountered, I started encountering people who were just living with cancer. And it still kind of breaks my brain that like the medicine, and some of it is also types of cancer, but like that medicine can make it possible for someone to just live out the last 20 or whatever years of their life with a maintenance course of treatment for the a disease. That language has moved over to a lot of the way we talk about all sorts of health things. And that's really problematic when you're talking to people with disabilities or chronic illnesses. So I have migraine. My migraines are not going anywhere. I can't fight them. Fighting them makes it worse. That sounds, yeah. <laughs> like if I try and fight that and do all of the things I know will provoke an attack, all I get is a migraine attack. <laughs> so you're setting people up in sort of a, a metaphor they're going to lose. So don't do this. And that can be hard. That can be hard because it is everywhere and it has been a lot of, it's been even more these last couple of years. So if you're not yet able to like stop doing that, this would be my like action item. Start to notice when people are using this sort of warrior military metaphor for health stuff. Become aware of it and and then start to ask like, okay, knowing that that's not really an optimal way to discuss this, what are the other ways? And let that sink in for a bit. And then start changing how we talk about health. I also was thinking one of the one of the things we do, one of the ways we do damage, and this is the this is the hospital chaplain in my background talking, is that we we then make it harder for people to, when it's appropriate, for people to access all the palliative options 
and the hospice options. Palliative care and hospice care are not the same. They have some overlaps, but they're different. But, you know, Robin, you're talking about people who are living with cancer, for example. We make it really hard for people to say, like, you know, I've chosen something different. The goal of what we would call the goal of care is not going to be able to be cure, but I've chosen, there's some other management things that we can do and I've chosen some options. And it makes it really hard for people to make decisions and be able to think clearly about decisions. And that's a hard decision to make even without that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But you're making it like impossible because you're giving up. You're supposed to be fighting cancer. And I, we talk about this like uh, it's a switch you can flip. So I also want to say the last time I told my doctor I wasn't going to do a thing, it did kick off like a three-day shame spiral. <laughs> like even though I've been aware of this for years and annoyed by it for years, um, this is fairly recent. I was like, no, there's. I don't think there's actually a point to doing that and I'm not going to do it. My doctor was actually pretty great, but I was like complete spiral over it like it's hard it is hard to make those choices we talk about peer pressure when we talk about middle schoolers but you know where they get that from they get that from adults and not good for us to try to peer pressure people into making the decisions that we think they should make about something that's actually about them (laughs) And some doctors are good about that, and some doctors are not. And white coat syndrome, where doctors' power in medical situations is highly elevated, also raises that question of how much resistance am I going to get if I say no to something? So again, back to Robin's action item. Think about the language. Notice the language. Change the language. Change the language. Thank you for joining us for this conversation about faith and disability. We encourage you to find local conversation partners about faith and disability. As we've mentioned a couple of times in this episode, we have a lot of resources and links to share with you. So please do check those out. Um, There are many more out there, but we thought this would give you a place to start and some information that hopefully more helpful than not. You might be wondering, because we say it at the end of every podcast, How do you find conversation partners about faith and disabilities? This is going to be our last frequently asked question for this episode. So Robin, you had some ideas. I have a couple ideas. And it's sort of like a do, do not list. So the first one, and maybe the most important one, is do not assume everyone wants to talk about faith and disability as much as I do. For the love of all things holy. Not everyone loves us as much as we do. You know, the like extreme example is don't stop random people and assume this is the conversation they want to have, but you might bring it up to people and that is just not what they care about. And that is wonderful. They should care about other things. So yeah, first tip, don't assume every disabled person wants to have these conversations. Tip number two, do bring it up anyways, not like with people assuming they're going to care. But mention disability as a part of faith. Raise the question. Uh, One, and this is, I think, both of our experiences even before the podcast, is once you bring it up, the people who are interested 
will be like, I have found the other person like me in the room. And they will find you. If you are in conversation, mention the thought like, oh, what about this? Or I was listening to this great podcast and they were talking about this. And it might take a few tries and it might be frustrating at first, but you will find the people who are also interested in this. Yeah, we find that if you're willing to take a chance and be the person who makes space for disability or the person who brings up the issue that, yeah, like Robin said, those people, uh, people who want to talk about it, people who have experiences with it, people who feel kind of isolated and don't know who to, to speak with about it, they might come find you. And then you find all kinds of interesting conversations and maybe some community right in front of you, right there. You didn't even know it was there. Tip three. If you're not ready to do that, disability Twitter is a lovely space to lurk. If you're pretty sure that this sounds important and you don't know where else to start, find disability Twitter. The hashtags are pretty much like disability <laughs> and you will you will find the activists from around the world we talk about local but we mean local to you people you can talk to not the people next door necessarily i do recommend lurking for a little bit first just to get a sense of like what the topics are and what the conversational boundaries are and who to listen to well but that is a place to find people who care about faith and disability especially the disability part. Yeah, it's a good place for Disability 101 for somebody to say, um, if you're looking for a quick thread to understand why, let's say, as an example, why cochlear implants are not the, ex not the answer to all hearing-related questions, um, here's a quick thread and somebody will run you through the basic things that you need to know about cochlear implants and what they do and what they don't do and why some people are in favor of them and why some people are not in favor of them. That's just, I'm just kind of pulling a random example, but that's something you, I could go on Twitter right now and I could find information that would help me as somebody who doesn't know a lot about issues related to hearing, I could find information that would help me understand. So disability Twitter is a great place. If you're sitting there and thinking uh, social media is great, Twitter is not my jam. Uh, TikTok also has a pretty active disability conversation that happens there. So that is also a place you can find resources about all sorts of disabilities. It's also one of the places I have found the best expressions of just disabled joy being shown. And even if like you're more of a YouTube person, some great disability YouTubers. There's out there. lots of stuff on on YouTube if you want. You want to look up all kinds of things and like a lot of practical stuff. Um, lots of people there who just are happy to show you how they do different things or how things work or to here's what my life with X looks like. Right, exactly. Or even just presentations of papers or TED Talks or whatever. It's There's all kinds of stuff there. So use use the Google um, and look on YouTube. Check TikTok. Check Twitter. Four. You got a fourth one. I think four is the final one. It's a little bit like it would be good for both of us. If you have just loved this podcast and what we talk about, share it and find the people who also love it. One of our hopes in creating this is we would also be creating a tool that people could share to help start conversations. Whether 
with your priest, like, hey, I have questions around this, or this might be me, and I, I'd like to talk with you, or hey, could we try the thing they mentioned here? But tell people about us and, and see if that gets a conversation or two going. Definitely share information about the accessible altar. But also, you know what? Go wherever you find podcasts and look up disability, and you're going to find all different kinds of disability-related podcasts. And there's there's that too. Any media that you might be um, accessing, there's going to be disability. That is our last question for this episode, but I hope that that helps you understand our little um, concluding tagline that we use. And maybe take some action, like we said, to find some conversation partners about these topics. If you have a question we didn't answer today, please email that or there's a contact form on our website and let us know what the question is. We will probably do another one of these when we have enough questions. So send those in. You have been listening to The Accessible Altar, a podcast at the intersection of faith and disability, hosted by Robin King and Stephanie Shockley. We record on the traditional land of the Lene Lenape and Treaty 6 territory. If you like The Accessible Altar, please rate and review us wherever you find podcasts. For additional information about anything we talked about in this episode, as well as a transcript of the show, check out the show notes on our website, www.accessiblealter.com. We are on Twitter and Instagram as at Accessible Altar. And join us on our Facebook page at The Accessible Altar. If you have questions, feedback, or ideas for future episodes, please email us at accessiblealter at gmail.com. Thank you.